chapter 8, verses 2 through 8. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the work that you are doing in this church and for the work that you did in the early church as we see time and time again that you turned suffering and sorrow into rejoicing and triumph. And I pray that we wouldn't judge Saul from afar here, that we would recognize that there is wickedness in our own hearts and that we do need a Savior. And praise God that he did find the one true Savior. So help us now, Father, to listen to your word in spirit and in truth. May we worship you as we listen now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. Ah, do you just feel uplifted after worship? I sure do. Just uh, really need that on a Sunday morning, especially after you've lost an hour of sleep. Those of you who are not here and are watching by television, welcome. But those of you who are here, you're the warriors. Uh, How do we go from verses 2 to verse 8? Like, how do we go get from there... Verse 2, which says that they were deeply mourning, deeply mourning the loss of a beloved, effective leader. And then by the time we get to verse 8, as we just read, they're celebrating, they're overjoyed because God's work is still going forth despite their losses. How do we get from verse 2 to verse 8? Uh, From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 7, essentially what you have all the way up to Stephen's death, the church has been described largely as enjoying the favor of everyone who lives in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the summary verse in Acts 2.47 says they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people as the Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved. And so up until this point, they have experienced favor. We learned last week that due to a very zealous faction of Jews, the tide has now turned against them. This favor is evaporating. The Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, has ruled against them. They are not to be treated equally nor justly under the law. The Sanhedrin cannot refute the wisdom or the insights. They can't refute... uh, any of the arguments that both Stephen and the apostles have been giving. And Stephen, as we saw last week, gave his life by challenging what he calls a stiff-necked people. That's a quote, I think, from Deuteronomy 10. Where essentially Moses just says, hey, don't be stiff-necked. Have a heart that is circumcised. In other words, have a heart that is devoted and devout. And so these people were rich in knowledge poor in mercy. They had an embarrassment of riches in terms of their covenants and their law, but they had a scandalous poverty in terms of their obedience to its message. And the tragedy of a beloved leader's death has rocked the church, that's for sure. And what's more, this man named Saul of Tarsus, 
has taken it upon himself now to be the personal embodiment of this persecution. He is going from house to house, dragging Christians out of their homes and putting them into prison. And the situation for sure looks grim for the church. The first Christian martyr is a harbinger of more to come. And today we're going to look at a passage in chapter 8 that shows the church fulfilling its God-given mission, growing in a way that no one at the time had anticipated. They did not expect what God was going to do. So the first thing we see in this story is, number one, severe persecution causes the church to scatter into their ordained mission. Make no mistake about this. No mistake, this is an ordained mission. Christ has given them this mission. Christ has given them this charge, this mandate to go out to Judea and then Samaria and then the rest of the world. Now, I want to show you the, just the juxtaposition, the difference between Acts 1.8 and Acts 8.1. I want to show them to you side by side. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the rest of the world. So here we clearly see Jesus giving them a decree. You will, you will be my witnesses and testify about me here in the city, in Judea, then in Samaria, and then out there in the rest of the Gentile world. Now Acts 8.1. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church. That is the day Stephen died. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So this is how God does it. And, and we may not like this, but God actually sovereignly allows one of their key leaders to die, literally lose his life in an act of horrendous persecution so that the church will be scattered away from Jerusalem. He does not allow them the time to become complacent where they are because they're successful. The church was successful in Jerusalem. And then we first meet Saul of Tarsus at this trial. The outer coats of the stoners. I think that's the Greek word, stoner. <laughs> that's what we call them. Uh, they, they laid their outer cloaks at the feet of a young man named Shao. That's his name in Hebrew. His Greek name, which he had from birth, is Pallas or Paul. And so they lay their coats at his feet. And it says that Saul was there giving his approval. Now, that doesn't mean he was like, yeah, I think this is a good idea. It means that he was there as the flagger. I forget the exact Hebrew term that's used for this, but essentially in stoning protocol, what you do is you lay your coats at the feet of the person who is going to decide whether or not this person lives or dies. And you pick up the bricks or the stones, and that person has a white handkerchief, and if they drop it and it hits the ground, that means you have my approval. If he doesn't and he puts it back away or ties it back around his neck or whatever, that means you don't have the approval. And so Saul is the leader. Saul is actually giving his approval that this be done. Right after this, Saul is going to be the embodiment of this persecution. He is going to uh, actually take the lead here of this group, this Freedman synagogue, and then go from house to house. So what you need to know about Saul is that he was a religious fanatic. By every definition of the term. A zealous Orthodox Jew. A student of Gamaliel. 
an up-and-coming Pharisee in training and his zeal to persecute his Jewish Christian brothers was based on his ignorance of who Jesus was. Now, Paul gives us his own pedigree. He tells us the kind of person that he was. In Philippians 3, 2 through 6, he says, Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for the mutil- those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about a faction of Jews who joined the church. And in Acts chapter 15, they want to put pressure on the church to require Gentiles to actually convert to Judaism. In other words, you can't just be saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. You also have to convert to being a Jew. And they're called the Judaizers. And everywhere Paul would go and plant a church, the Judaizers would follow right behind him to try to convert his converts to Judaism. And, he would, and they would tell the men, you have to be circumcised. This is what he means by mutilators of the flesh. And you have to eat a kosher diet. And you have to meet on the Sabbath. Uh, you have to actually practice Sabbath worship. And Paul, in Galatians, just read the book of Galatians, loses his mind over this. He goes, no, absolutely, you do not. You are Gentiles. You're the people of God because you have the Spirit of God. You're the people of God, not because you outwardly conform, but because inwardly you have received the life-transforming presence of the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, he says, uh, watch out for those, those who mutilate the flesh. So pretty strong wording here. For we, he says, are the, we are the circumcision. What's he talking about here? Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is where Moses says, someday there are, you are going to have descendants. You stiff-necked people. Someday you are going to have children. And they will have not just circumcised flesh. They will have circumcised hearts. Their hearts will be devoted to, to God. Their hearts will be set apart and consecrated to the living God. And this is what Paul is talking about. He says, we are the circumcision. That is believers, those who believe in Christ. We're the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. You see, that's the badge of membership. The badge of membership in the people of God is the Spirit of God, is the Spirit of God in your life. He said, we're the ones who boast in Christ Jesus and who do not put any confidence in the flesh at all. Now watch this. He says, although I, myself, have reasons for such confidence in the flesh. Now, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, uh, I've got more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, a pure shame. A Pharisee, that means the pure ones. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the Torah, faultless, blameless. You could not point out one area in my life where I had not checked the boxes. And this is the kind of person that Paul was. Paul was the kind of person who was as religious as you could possibly be according to the law of Moses, and he was lost in his sins, dying and separated from God. Acts 22, he's giving a speech now at his trial, and, what, and he basically tells them the same thing. He, Paul, continued, I'm a Jew. I'm born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, 
According to the strictness of our ancestral law, I was zealous for God, just as many of you are today. I persecuted the way, that is Christianity. I persecuted the way to the death, arresting both men and women, putting them in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from the brothers, that is you, the Sanhedrin, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who, who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. Saul was a fanatic. And in 1 Timothy 1, he said, you know what I was? I was as religious as a man could be, and I was a blasphemer. While I was doing that, while I was opposing Christ and his church, I was blaspheming God. Uh, I gave you a little bit of bad news last week. I want to give you the rest of the news, the good news, and that is that uh, the bad news was that the church in the Middle East is almost non-existent now. A century ago, between 20 and 30 percent of residents of the Middle East, of any Middle East, of the Middle Eastern countries, uh, were Christian. Today, that's down to about 3 percent. In Palestine, a century ago, 15 percent were Christian, and now only 2 percent are. As a matter of fact, 340 million Christians in the world today, 340 million Christians in the world today live in countries where the daily threat of imprisonment or harassment or loss of property or or death is just a daily reality to them. It's a daily reality. And in the Middle East, there are countries, there are places where the church has scattered from those places, has gone into and is now flourishing, now growing. As a matter of fact, the president of Open Doors USA said, the church is catching hold in those countries, in those places. Because this is what the church does. The church is persecuted in one place, is scattered, and then produces fruit for the kingdom of God. So while the church was favored in Jerusalem by all the people. It flourished and grew greatly in numbers. When the crackdown happened afterwards, the church will struggle mightily in Jerusalem from this point onward. But it will grow like a wildfire, like a grass fire in high wind in the rest of the world. Number two, Luke takes the space to connect us to the humanity of the story. And we learn that, number two, part of our Christian witness to the world is how we mourn the death The deaths of beloved saints. Part of our witness to the world is how we mourn our dead. How we bury them. In fact, we don't just teach people how to live for Christ. We teach them how to die in Christ. How to die well. How to die with hope. Chapter 8, verse 2, it says, Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. When men die... When a person dies, no one ever calls the village atheist. Why? What do they have to say? Here's this person who is the product of natural undirected uh, forces. Who was matter in motion and is now no longer in motion. Here's a person who was just particles, space dust, in progress. Who is now no longer in progress. You know, like, what, what is the eulogy at an atheist funeral? Listen, when men die, when mankind, when people go in the ground, you want to call the devout man. Because it's the believer who can stand there and eulogize the dead and say, hey, listen, this is what a human being is. A human being is made in the image of God. A human being who is a believer in Jesus has the hope of eternity 
has the hope of resurrection, has the hope of heaven with Christ, a new creation. And so these devout men take the time to mourn Stephen's death. And in Jewish mourning, their system was about seven days long. Seven days was considered a complete mourning cycle. So they take the time to do this. Mourning the death of our loved ones is normal because we do it all the time. But it's not natural. It's normal. But it's not natural. It's normal because we do it often. But it's not natural because you and I were never designed to die. We were designed to live in perpetuity. We were designed to live forever with God in his presence. That is why we have the hope of the resurrection. But it is normal. The disciples mourned the death of Jesus. You ever get the sense when you're reading the scriptures that between Friday and Sunday, Friday night and Sunday morning, they were pretty depressed. Oh, they had a lot to be depressed about. Their master, they knew he was the son of God. They knew it. Their master could do things on the hillsides of Galilee and Judea that they only read about in the Old Testament and he could do it at will. He could raise the dead with a word. And they expected him to bring that power to bear to subjugate Rome. That's what they thought was going to happen. And now he's dead on a Roman cross. Are you kidding me? Imagine the heartbreak. He is their friend. He is their master. He is their Lord, like a father figure to them. And just like that, he's gone. And they don't believe he's going to be resurrected. Not on Saturday, they don't. They don't believe it Friday night. And so they mourn his passing. And the church mourns the death of its saints. So it's normal. I have a beloved professor of theology in Greek. Back when I was in college many years ago, uh, he was a masterful teacher. Uh, I was so impressed with the breadth of his knowledge. I remember as a young guy would sit there in his classes in this Christian doctrine course or something, and I I was just mesmerized by his teaching. Because one, he was so knowledgeable, but he wasn't a dry, a typical seminary teacher. Like just dry as chalk dust. He, he was a spellbinding teacher. He, you were just sitting on the edge of your seats, taking notes as fast as you could as like a stenographer. He was so good. And I remember thinking, man, someday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know as much as he knows. And someday I'm going to be able to communicate the, the way that Dr. Dan Pakoda communicates. And I remember I was, uh, I was out at the student center and I was sitting there reading a book and he comes by after class one day and he struck up conversation with me and uh, he said, hey, you know what, uh, Jeff, you should jump in our Greek class next semester. I was like, oh no, I won't be doing that. He said, why? I said, I for sure would fail that. I go, man, I, I, that's, that's beyond me. Like I'm in the youth ministry track. No offense, youth ministers, but... Um, that's kind of the easy track in college. And he was like, no, 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 switch over. Come over to the biblical literature. That, that is as hard as you might think it is. Like, come over here. And he talked me into it. I said, yes, sir, I'll try it. And I got in and it was five days a week. And it was a whole year long. And when I was done, I passed. I did pretty well. And after that course, he found me in the same place at the student center. He found me in the same place and I was studying some book. And he said, uh, and uh, this was my year. I was graduating this year. And I just wanted to tell him, Dr. Dan, thank you. Thank you for calling me up. Thank you for challenging me. 
And I just, I was trying to say thank you for mentoring me. Thank you for being an example of what a good, biblically literate and passionate for Jesus teacher is. And I was trying to tell him this and he was, and he challenged me again. (laughs) Doggone it. (laughs) He said, hey, have you thought about getting your master's or your doctorate? I said, no, I have not. I will not be doing that. And he goes, why? I said, I for sure wouldn't do well with that. I for sure would flunk out of that. He goes, no, 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 Jeff, you wouldn't. You would do well. You should go for it. And I mean, he called me to level up again. And he is one of the reasons why I am in ministry today. He is one of the reasons why I'm in ministry doing what I'm doing on the path that I'm on. Because he called me up. And so he meant so much to me. He was a mentor and a friend. A few years later, I found out that he just passed away unexpectedly. He was about 65 years old, young guy. And he was riding his bicycle and he wrecked and got a brain bleed and he just stroked out and and he died. And at the time when my friend told me that, I was devastated. I was just, I was in mourning. And I remember I got up and got in my car one day and I was I was driving out of the parking lot and it was a cold day in Minneapolis. I was a church planter. I lived in Minneapolis. It was so cold. My little car, my little Chevy Cavalier would not warm up. I couldn't get it hot. And I remember I started thinking about Dr. Bakota and I started crying and the tears would just stream out of my eyes and just freeze to my face. (laughs) I just freeze my face. I would just kind of pluck the ice off of my face. And I remember I was just crying because I was thinking, how senseless was that? That such an awesome teacher and a man of God was lost so early in life. And then just like that, the whole atmosphere of the car changed. And I felt the glory of heaven. I could see him. I mean, in my heart, in my mind's eye, I could see him standing before Jesus, worshiping Jesus. And I just, my tears turned into icicles of joy. I just began to think about how awesome it would be to be Dr. Dan and to be in the presence of the Lord and have, having served faithfully and served well. And I mourned my teacher, but I also rejoiced. You see what the Christian has? The Christian has hope. This is what Paul teaches us. He tells us this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, ignorant, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Yes, we grieve, but not as those who don't have the hope of heaven. Not as those who don't have the promise of new creation. Not as those who don't have the anticipation of of resurrection life, the assurance of it. You and I grieve, we do. We mourn, we take the time to mourn our losses, we do. But we do so because we're the most hopeful people on the planet. You got a funeral? Call the man of God. Find a devout person to come and talk about the hope of heaven and the hope of resurrection. And you better believe that this was a witness to Paul. Now, for sure, in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus appears to him out of heaven and slaps him off that horse, for sure, I think all of us would have said, amen, yes, I'm a Christian now. Like, if we had had that same experience, we would probably respond exactly the way he did. But I think this did plant a seed in his heart. Because he did not just see Stephen's testimony in life, he saw Stephen die. 
He saw a Christian look up into heaven and look forward to the hope of heaven. And you better believe that planted a seed in his heart. Number three, Luke doesn't just take, uh, Luke doesn't take his eye off the ball here. He shows us that number three, against all odds, the church grows when the pressure is on. Against all odds, the church grows when the pressure is on. Verse four, it says, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Well, that's what scattered people do. That's what scattered Christians do. When pressure, when they receive pressure in one place and they're scattered into another place, they go with the word and they preach the word and they tell people about the testimony. They give people the testimony of Jesus and his gospel. And remarkably, this had been the plan all along. I mean, this had been the plan the whole time. The whole time, Christ had intended for them to be scattered just like this. And he knew that they would enjoy a season of prosperity, growth, and the favor of the culture. And let me tell you this, there's nothing wrong with that. Do you know, Christ Community Church, despite COVID-19, we have been in a season of prosperity for a while. Prosperity and growth. And I gotta tell you, it's fun. I like having enough money to fund our ministries. Like, I like that. I like the fact that you guys are superhumanly generous. I, I think it's fun for the church to be able to pool its resources and do amazing things for the kingdom of God. And it's great seeing new families and new faces come into this room as uh, the old folks return, right? Our, our previous people return. That is fun. And there's nothing whatsoever irreligious or wrong with having a season of prosperity and growth and fruitfulness for the gospel. God can do a lot of things. And he did do a lot of things while they had favor in Jerusalem. But now he needs to do something else. God needs to actually put pressure on them to get them to move out. Move out into the rest of the territory that he's called them to do. So scattered Christians make new disciples in new places wherever they go. Uh, Verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. Now, Samaria is north of Jerusalem, but you have to go down to it because it's down in sea level, right? And then in verse 6, it says, the crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and, and saw the signs that he was performing. Now, as far as we could tell, this is not the apostle Philip. This is Deacon Philip. Now, think about this for a second. Just think about it. Stephen, Deacon Stephen, uh, was ministering powerfully, powerfully in the spirit. God had anointed him to proclaim the gospel in a town that was favorable to the church, and he died. Now, Philip has that same mantle, like that same anointing is now on Philip, and he goes into a town or city in Samaria, and he begins to preach the gospel. That same anointing, that same power, people are getting saved all over the place. People are coming to the Lord. But Samaria is hostile to the Jew and hostile to the Christian. When we tend to think of Samaritans, what do we think of? What do you think of? The Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Or you think of John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. And there, to make a long story short, uh, Jesus came. He struck up conversation with her. And she said, I perceive that you are a prophet. I believe. She goes home, tells her town. Her town is like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. We believe. And then Jesus comes to her town. And they're all like, 
We believe. And then they leave. And we tend to think, yeah, this was a pretty hospitable place, but it was not hospitable. As a matter of fact, the last encounter Jesus had at Samaria, on his last journey through, Luke chapter 9 tells us that as he was going through Samaria, the Samaritans rejected him. The Samaritans gave him the boot and said, get out of here. We don't want to hear it. So now he's going into a place where Jesus had been received, had been rejected, and now he's going in as a Jew and a Christian. So he's got to be thinking, Stephen was first, Philip's going to be next. The next story in the book of Acts is going to be Philip's stoning. But it isn't. That's not God's plan. Uh, Verse 7 says this, it says, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of uh, many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Their grief over the loss of such a beloved leader transforms into the joy of a new and glorious work that the Lord is doing among a people, and it's going to be profound and it's going to be lasting. Satan's hold on people's lives and their minds is broken by the power of the Spirit, and they are just getting started. This is not even halfway through the book of Acts. They are just getting started. Listen, when people are delivered by the power of the Lord, they experience the joy of the Lord. When people are delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit, they experience the joy of the Spirit. I uh, had an encounter with uh, a young man who had come into our church back in uh, Spokane. I was a discipleship pastor there. And he came into our church, and I was the only pastor that was there uh, at the time uh, in the office. And so the administrator, our secretary, called back on my phone and said, hey, can you come up here right now, right now, right now? And I said, sure. So I made my way up to the administrator's front desk, and there was a young man standing there, and he was very agitated. He was shaking. And I could tell right away, it's drugs, something. And, and I walked up, and I said, hey, man, how you doing? My name is Jeff. He goes, can you, please, can you please pray for me? I was like, yeah, you bet. He goes, I just need help. I need somebody to help me. So we, I took him over to a little classroom that was right there in the lobby. We sat down, and I said, man, tell me your story. And he, he tried to tell me that he was addicted to meth and addicted to heroin and a few other things. And man, he was, he was in rough shape. And he was, I could tell he was completely oppressed by the power of the devil. And I said, man, what do you want? He said, I just, I need somebody to help me to deliver me. And I said, done. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay my hand on your back, if you don't mind, and I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to pray together. Is that cool? He goes, yes, go. (laughs) And so I laid my hand on his back, and I just began to pray. I mean, no, I'm not a high-voltage demon chaser. I have no intention of starting uh, uh, the Jeff Kennedy International Demonic uh, ministries, you know, like I have no intention of starting uh, any exorcism ministries, but I just laid my hands on his back and I just began to pray, God, would you just please set this brother free, set Jason free? And I mean, man, as I began to pray, he began to shriek loudly and it just got wild. It got loud and it got wild. And I could sense the, that the enemy was letting him go. And then my administrators, it got so loud, my administrators came out to see if everything was okay. They're like, you okay? I'm like, we're good, we're good, go. (laughs) You know, and I kept praying for him. And then when he sort of screeched his last, I said, Jason, are you ready to commit your life to Jesus? He said, yes, I am. 
I said, do you, do you agree that you are a sinner? He goes, I am a sinner. I go, do you agree that Jesus, salvation is in Jesus' name alone? Yes. And I mean to tell you, the Spirit filled him. And the look on his face between the time I met him when he walked in and the time he was filled with the Spirit and delivered from the dark powers of the enemy, it was night and day. You see, what happens when a person is delivered... When a person is set free, when they are brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, they experience the joy of the Lord. You have never seen anyone so full of the joy of the Lord. And this is what is happening. This ministry is going on with Philip. People are being delivered times 10. And there is great joy that God is pouring out his spirit and bringing people in to the kingdom of his marvelous light. Now, I want to show you the arc of the story. I want to show you how this story actually comes to a close in chapter 11. It's in verses 19 and 21. He says, now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, Antioch, all the way up north, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they're still a little skittish. We don't, know if Gentile, this, we don't know if the Gentiles are really ready for this. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So this is now the end of that story arc. What you have is a persecution that began and ended in the death of a beloved leader, Someone you would never want to see pass off the scene. It is now ending. Here's, here's how it ended. God's presence is being poured out through the gospel, through the scattered church, and people are coming to faith because of this persecution. Never underestimate what God can do. Never underestimate what God can do. So let me give you some application words here. The first one is this. Would you consider... Supporting brothers and sisters around the world. Just, this is an idea. This is what I do. I have a few ministries like this that I support on occasion. Uh, and I, I tell you, I love ministries like this. Uh, Open Doors USA. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 26, if one part of the body of Christ suffers, every part suffers with it. And if you go to opendoorsusa.org, you will find a ministry there that does a lot of work to help Christians as they are relocated from towns where they've been persecuted. And there are all kinds of practical ways we can help them. They publish an annual watch list. You can download the watch list and pray for the nations. Pray for the nations. And pray for the Christians that are in those countries. You can support Bibles and Bible study and discipleship training materials, usually because they've been burned. Usually because they've been set on fire and burned and you can help them get their Bibles back and their training materials back. They also support safe houses for abused and trafficked Christian women and children. They help with microloans for the rebuilding of churches, homes that have been burned to the ground. And they also build emergency shelters for those people until they can get their homes back. You and I, living in an affluent nation where we have maximal freedom and maximal money, you and I need to be challenged. I have been challenged by this 
to help support some people who don't have the kinds of freedom we do and don't have the kinds of resources that we do. So that's one way you and I can apply this message. Number two, don't rush the grieving process. The New Testament church didn't. Listen, God wired you to heal. Just like your body, you know, you break a bone, you set it, your body will heal itself. And so will your soul. Your soul was designed to heal itself. Over time, you can heal, but you got to give yourself time. I can tell you right now, there are things that Carrie and I have gone through over the last couple of years, I'm still healing from. Like I, what I want to do is close the door on that chapter and move on. And you say, well, that, that, we did that. Let's move on. Let's take the next hill. And there are times when my emotions catch up with me and I have to deal with it. And I have to stop in my tracks and turn it over to the Lord. Because I can tell you, you will never be sorry that you did that. You will never be sorry when it comes to loss and suffering and tragedy. You will never be sorry that you sought new depths in God. You'll never be sorry that you did that. And so, but take the time. Take the time. Don't rush the grieving process. And number three, don't be intimidated by cultural bullies. What I love is that the gospel just keeps going forth. It's the relentless gospel. Like these cultural bullies in the Sanhedrin, they reject the gospel and they just take it to the next town. They go wherever people are open to hearing it because it's relentless and God is the one who is doing it. Pressure is always an opportunity for refinement, to be pruned, to be pruned back. It's always an opportunity for us to grow, to experience new kinds of growth. And it's a good thing. God knows what he's doing. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your word, which just imparts life to us. What a blessing it is to be able to examine this word. And if you're here this morning and you've suffered loss, something something you'll never get back. Would you just turn it over to the Lord right now? Whatever it is, turn it over to Jesus. Would you, you just commit yourself to right now, working through it with God and seeking new depths in him, new, new horizons, new vistas in his presence. Will you commit to doing that now? God, as a congregation, we want to say thank you. Thank you for the freedoms we have. But Lord, we pray that in this, frankly, season of prosperity and growth and just blessing, you have blessed us so much and we are so thankful for it. But God, would you make us maximally effective? Would you make us effective with all that you have given us? The resources, the people, and the time that we have now with the gospel. And we commit ourselves as a church to that. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.